Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want this picture to be a commentary on modern conditions, stark realism, the problems that confront the average man. But with a little six. A little, but I don't want to stress it. I want this picture to be a document. I want to hold a mirror up to life. I want this to be a picture of dignity, a true canvas of the suffering of humanity. But with a little six. With a little sex in it. How about a nice musical? How can you talk about musicals at a time like this with the world committing suicide, with corpses piling up in the street? with grim death gargling at you from every corner, with people slaughtered like sheep. Maybe they'd like to forget that. Then why do they hold this one over for a fifth week at the music hall? For the ushers? They died in Pittsburgh. Like a dog. What do they know in Pittsburgh? They know what they like. If they knew what they like, they wouldn't live in Pittsburgh. That's no argument. If you panted to the public, you'd still be in the horse age. You think we're not? Look at Hopalong Castle. You look at them. We'd still be making keystone chases, bathing beauties, custard pie And a fortune. Fortune. Of course, I'm just a minor employee here, Mr. LeBrand. He's starting that one again. I wanted to make you something outstanding, something you could be proud of, something that would realize the potentialities of film as the sociological and artistic medium that it is, with a little sex in it, something like Something like Capra. I know. What's the matter with Capra? Look, you want to make a brother without that? Yes. Now, wait a minute. Then go ahead and make it. What you're getting, I can't afford to argue with you. That's a fine way to start a man out on a million-dollar production. You want it, you've got it. Hi everybody, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome back to 15 Minute Film Fanatics, the podcast where Mike and I watch movies separately and talk about them on the show for the first time. Today we're going to be doing Sullivan's Travels, 1941, great, great film written and directed by Preston Sturgis. I love this movie. Mike, you texted me that you love the movie. We have not talked about it yet, but although we never do anything before our first segment, we never get into like boring banter because we think that's the kind of thing we don't like in podcasts. I have to share something with you. You ready? Hit me. This is our 200th episode. Really? Yeah. I lost count. We've done 200 of these. How crazy is that? Uh, that that's a lot of fun. Isn't uh, that cool? So I, thank you, everybody, for, for listening. Yeah. I didn't expect that. Thanks for listening, everybody. Because, of course, you know, if we sat down and said, okay, we have to crank out 200 of these, we might be like, oh, it'd be like doing homework. But didn't it fly? It's amazing how, like, no, how I, great. If you had asked me, I would have said 97, something like that. I would have been <laughs> ridiculously off. Yeah, so this is 200, and it just works out perfectly. I wish we were smart enough to plan this, but how great is it that on our 200th episode, we're doing a movie which is all about why we love the movies? Yeah, we would have we would have sat here uh, hand wringing and trying to find you know the, the the appropriate canvas of human suffering to do to show that we were serious about the movies, and instead we chose Sullivan's Travels. Okay, so since this was a Dan pick, and I and I and I uh, threw it on to Mike, he gets to go first. So in our part first part, we always talk about our overall take on the film, Mike. Overall, 
talk about Sullivan's travels. Everything in this movie is pitch perfect from its casting, which is utterly unbelievable for having veronica lake be the girl what's her name in the movie by the way the girl the girl <laughs> she's the girl because every uh, you gotta have it there's a girl in every movie to its run to its runtime which i believe is 91 minutes exactly unless i'm unless i'm mistaken and there's there's a minute uh at the beginning and at the end where they're just thanking people who make funny movies so let's let's call it a perfect 90 to uh the 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 fake book within the movie which is of course titled oh brother where art thou Oh, brother, where art thou? Which the Cohen brothers would later take literally, uh, you know, for better or for worse. Um, everything in this movie is perfect. It would, it seems on its surface like a really difficult movie to make. And I say that because the danger of having somebody be active in their own satire would make this a lesser movie. Right. It's if I told you what the here's what the movie's about a director who wants to make a serious movie goes on an adventure to suffer and ends up having a a, a great time and shows that he knows nothing about suffering. Um, the having a great time, I think a lesser director would make this a, a slapstick comedy only. Now, of course, there's slapstick elements to it, but I think that they would that they would get it wrong. It's a it's a super easy thing to get wrong. It's like quicksand. So the question is, how could you do it right such that there there are laughs, there is charm, there is romance, but there is also suffering, right? How how could you make a comedy without belittling the thing that the drama is supposed to be about or turning it into just a satire of people who take themselves too seriously? Because I think a harsh touch is too harsh. How can you have it with the right touch? I think this film is like Singing in the Rain. It's the it's this and Singing in the Rain are the two perfect movies about movies. They both talk about what movies do well, but they both do it. And one of the things I thought to myself is if you're going to make a movie that argues that the light touch is better for people overall than Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? You'd better be able to do it. Like you better be able to walk that walk. And he certainly does. I mean, um, that's why Sullivan's Travels does what it does because it doesn't just caricature the poor like the butler tells Joel McRae, right? It shows you all of these things. He wants to find real trouble, but then we actually get scenes of real trouble that all of a sudden, it's like we've channel surfed into a different film. So I think that this movie actually does the thing that it insists is valuable, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think the temptation of the film, as I was mentioning before, is just to use Sully as a pinata. Yes, right. And- and have him be right. a fool. Right. If you asked me to if you asked me to write this movie and then you told me what you wanted it to be about, I would say, oh, you want me to make an ass of this guy a hundred times over. And that's all you want to see. But that's not true. Right. Because right. what what you have to do is if you explore his humanity, humanity will his humanity will sometimes be funny and his humanity will sometimes be tragic. And there's going to be comedy and there's going to be pathos. And so how can you how can you have something complex? which is also light, right? There's, it's almost Mozart, right? That's how, how can, how can you have that kind of depth, but it still be fun to listen to? That doesn't make any sense. Um, but it's, it's dense and sweet and light and not cloying. Yeah. Because it's not, it's not funny. It's not only funny the way something like say animal house is only funny or airplane is only funny. 
but there are times when it's very serious, but of course it's not serious the way the deer hunter is or, you know, or films like that. It's like this perfect marriage. And I think that, that, you know, it, it shows you that it, it, it doesn't talk about it. It shows it to you. And it does it from the very beginning. So as you remember, the first thing we see in the film is that tr is the train scene where the two guys are fighting on the train. And then the title comes up that says the end, like, like talk about knowing you're in good hands. Right. So the very first thing is that we see the power of movies. Cause when you see that train fight, you're already in. You even know who's fighting. You don't know who these people are. Be like, wow, this is exciting. And you get drawn in. Then it's over. And the first thing Sullivan does is ruin the fun. He's like, look, it's capital and labor. And, they're, they're, and, and the executive's like, what? Right? So right in the very beginning, Sturgis shows us, here's how movies work. Here's how they suck us in. Here's somebody who wants to play with that. And the movie's going to be about what he learns about his desire to play with that formula. And I think that uh, one of the things that I like is it also has a, a nod to pandering to the audience, right? Because that that movie, even if he ruins the fun, was hold, held over for a fifth week. And In so Pittsburgh. Right, right. And so what and so what this movie is going to be about is uh, they're letting you know early that they're not going to pander to you. Now it doesn't seem like it because of course you get this um Abbott and Costello routine in the next room where he says I want to make a serious movie and they say okay but with a, a little, little sex. sex. Yeah, how about a nice musical? And so that's right that's actually what you get and they're they're describing the movie that you're in but they're also telling you that they're going to defy your expectations and the characters also defy Joel McRae's expectations. So they let him do it because he's, you know, he's Scorsese. He's somebody, you know, they want him to make Goodfellas too. Or he's like, no, I'm going to make Cundin or I'm going to make Silence or, or one of his pet projects, right? He thinks, I mean, the thing I love about Joel McRae at the beginning is he is like the classic guy that they call like a limousine liberal or a Mercedes Marxist or something. Like he's the guy that wants to find real trouble. Like he's the guy that will say like, okay, I'm going to, um, I'm going to sleep on the street for one night to quote unquote experience homelessness. But I know that I have an apartment on the Upper East Side and it's really nice. I can go back there if I get into real trouble. He keeps saying he wants to find real trouble. But all of the characters and actually the world of the film keep insisting he doesn't know what real trouble is, Right. And I love how, like in Shakespeare, we get these minor characters who illuminate these really important themes. Like the guy Burroughs, his butler, who, by the way, is he the perfect Jeeves? Like, did we miss a chance? Not to have this? What, that, that's one of the great missed opportunities in film. Second only behind Charles Lawton, not playing Johnson. Not playing Johnson. Right? Yeah. But when, when he says... um. He, Burroughs says to him, you see, sir, rich people and theorists who are usually rich people think of poverty in the negative as a lack of riches, as disease might be called the lack of health. But it isn't, sir. Poverty is not the lack of anything, but a positive plague, virulent in itself, contagious as cholera, with filth, criminality, vice, and despair as only a few of its symptoms. It is to be stayed away from, even for purposes of study. It is to be shunned. And Sully says, you seem to have made quite a study of it. And Burroughs says, quite unwillingly, sir. So he, you know, he's the guy that that Joel McRae thinks he's going to help and th that he's going to illuminate things for. And and the Burroughs has had this past life. Where he's like, no, I've seen that. I, I've, I don't need you to come along and illuminate this for me. But of course he wants to. And I love how the film in a very comedic way shows that he can't get escape velocity from his world, from Hollywood. Right. He just can't do it. No, it's a still a bonus moment. Of course, he hit he uh, falls into the bucket of water at night. <laughs> and so he's freezing in the middle of the desert. He hitches a ride at the back of the truck and it drops him off in Hollywood. Right, right in Hollywood, right? So I think that it's it's funny, like he he wants to be this different guy than he is, but because of his success at making uh, you know, um, 
hey, hey, in the hayloft and ants in your plants of 1939. He can't go back. Like, he can't, like, it reminded me of like when Bruce uh, was on Broadway and, you know, he was doing his one man show on Broadway. The tickets started out like $800 a piece for the cheap seats. And then Bruce would sing all about the working man. And it's kind of like, well, you know, Bruce, Bruce, he can't go back to Freehold, New Jersey. He just can't do it. And that's not good or bad. It's just what happened to him. Right. So it's kind of like Joel McRae trying to do the same thing. I'm going to find out real trouble, but I'm going to do it by getting on a costume and I'm going to rip up my clothes. And, and again, Burroughs, remember what Burroughs says to him? He says, um, I have never been sympathetic to the caricaturing of the poor. So all of a sudden, like he keeps getting these holes poked in his ambition by the studio guys who have a who want to poke holes in it for financial reasons, by Burroughs who wants to poke holes in it for like philosophical and ethical reasons. And he has to, it takes him the whole journey to find out that they were right. Well, the, the studio also tries to have him, uh, tries to serve him a summons because he's acting counter to the insurance policy that they have on him, uh, just in case he should be unable to make movies in the future. Right. So he goes around, I mean, you know, he wants to experience the, the real world, but it takes him a long time to get into it. As a matter of fact, he could only enter that real world when he quote unquote dies. I think that he tries to summon up enough moral seriousness, right, to, to, to inject into his medium, or he starts to get self-conscious about his platform. And so, right, it's, and it takes him a while to rediscover what it is that he wants to do, because, uh, you know, as we said about Tom Cruise, what what that shows is that he actually doesn't believe in the movies anymore, right? He's in on the joke enough that he's not the one laughing. And so he wants to do something that he thinks would move himself. And it's not until he can be moved as an audience member that he knows what the audience would like. Welcome back. In part two, we talk about our favorite moments. I think you could actually just stop the movie at any random moment of this film and have something worth talking about. But Mike, what's yours? Um, when we head into the movie's third act, not to get structuralist about it, uh, Joel McRae is deep undercover, uh, you know, sl sleeping on the street. And what happens is um, one of the hobos that he's sleeping next to steal his shoes uh, and swap shoes. And so the funny walk that he affects at the beginning of the movie. Remember when he's looking at himself in the mirror, right? Why do you have that funny walk? Because if you pick your foot up too far off the ground, the bottom will fall out of your shoes. So you have to shuffle. So at the beginning of the movie, he fakes the shuffle by the end of the movie or the beginning of the, the third act. He's shuffling because he's trying to keep the shoes that he's wearing together because somebody's stolen his good shoes, but also, uh, you know, unbeknownst to him, his identification. Um, and so, that's the beginning of the same act where things start to get serious. That's the first thing that involuntarily happens to him. Um, you know, again, not to get too punny, but he's gotten carried away with being a hobo and then being a hobo carries him away. Carries him away. And the first thing is that, you know, they switch the shoes. He says that he's done with it, that he, that he's gotten all the information that he needs. So he's going to hand out cash. And of course, the first two people that he gives the cash to, just like in a David Lean picture, you know, everybody says it looks at their shiny new five dollar bill. And, it, you know, and in an era when I think they they tell you that breakfast is full breakfast is 15 cents or something. Uh, so they're they're looking at their five dollar bill and somebody picks up on the scheme and decides that five dollars is not enough. So they're going to go all the way around, knock him out, drag his body onto a train and take the rest of the cash for himself. And of course, he is then carried away by that train. So there, there's a point at which the you don't fool around with it like you don't fool around 
beyond the breaker swimming because the tide will carry you away, which is, of course, what happens yeah. to Joel McRae. And I think also how this movie avoids making a simple caricature of him. It does make a caricature of him. He is a butt of a lot of jokes. But how can you then translate that into sympathy? Just even from a structural perspective, it's a very difficult thing for a movie to do, but they really pull it off. Yeah, and earlier in the scene, earlier in the film, when he first gets into the boxcar with Veronica Lake, and he asks the two hobos, like, well, you know, uh, how do you feel about the labor situation? And they just get up and walk away. Like, that's him, as you said, like being the butt of a joke. That's the viewers invited to mock him and laugh at him. Of course, because he's still in the driver's seat, right? right. As long as he can get in Sully's car, uh, but then he he becomes he becomes a passenger. And so, it, right, it, it tells you that the evocation of, of sympathy in the movie and the way you get it depends on how in control of your circumstance you are. When you have much more control than the audience, they laugh at you. When you have much less control than the audience, they pity you. To quote him again, his butler says that what Joel McRae wants to do, he says, um, to learn about poverty, he says, only the morbid rich would find the topic glamorous. And that's in the beginning, he is the morbid rich. And that's why we kind of mock Sullivan for what he's trying to do. But then, like you said, once the shoes get switched and he's a different person, now he doesn't think it's glamorous anymore. Now, now he actually is fighting for survival. Okay, so what's your moment? So my moment's kind of obvious for anyone that loves this film, but we have to talk about it. My moment is when he watches Mickey Mouse in the church. And we have, let's, let's, let's unpack that slowly, right? We find out they're going to the picture show. If you're good, you get to go to the picture show. And he, he's at, he's, he's in the chain gang. And the minister comes out, this guy named Jesse Brooks, who, who apparently played this kind of like fatherly kind of character in a lot of films, right? I love when he comes out and tells the congregation not to stare or anything before the convicts come in, right? He says, we don't want our guests to feel unwelcome. We're all equal under the sight of God. And you're like, whoa. And then he sings, go down to Moses. And you're like, what happened in this movie? Because that's like really moving. Like that's really well done. I think again, it's Preston Sturge showing us what movies can do, how emotional they are, how they can hit us in the stomach. But what I love about him saying, don't mock the convicts is that that's genuine compassion as opposed to the kind of fake Hollywood compassion that Joel McRae feels in the beginning. So we see a lot of films come out now, and maybe we'll talk about it at the end. There's a lot of films out now, you know, Oscar season that are made to show the quote unquote compassion of the industry or to show that Hollywood can deal with like real quote unquote social issues. Okay, that's one thing. But what that minister does when he says you're not to mock the convicts coming in to watch this movie, that's that's genuine. And because it's so genuine, I think it's really moving. And that's why he sings the song. So that happens and you're like, oh my God, that's unbelievable. And then they're going to watch the film, right? And it makes you think about this. Why show the movie in a church, right? Why is it happening in a church, right? And it makes me think, well, how is a movie theater like a church, right? You have like high priests, you have music, you have poetry, you have iconography, right? And, and of course, just like when you go to church or watch a great film, you have an elevation of spirit. And it, it does something for you as a human that's really hard to articulate. Like if somebody said to us right now, like, so you and you and uh, you and Mike have done 200 episodes in movies. Like, why do you like movies so much? That would be kind of hard to answer, right? You'd be like, well, how can you not? <laughs> it's like, what do you mean you don't like movies like as much as we do? So there's something very religious about what movies do to, to us as human beings. And the movie talks about that. But again, it shows it. And I think a really great way. Welcome back. So in part three, we always talk about the ending and the title. And I think there's something to be said for both, but Mike, you could start us off wherever you want. Yeah, I I was thinking 
that there are movies that are oh brother where art thou but they still work so one thing that i want to call attention to is i don't know if it came out before or after probably should have looked that up but let's think about something like the grapes of wrath with henry fonda right which is oh, oh brother, brother where art thou? thou uh not the cohen brothers version but but the real version it is about poverty it is about human suffering and it is, I think, just to kind of pick up on the last point you left us, it is what movies can do. That's That seems to me to be high art, but also to be extremely moving, And but, but not necessarily a negation of what you get in Sullivan's Travels. I think it, it leaves the door open for other kinds of movies beyond Mickey Mouse. Yeah. The movie doesn't argue that all we need is Hey, Hey in the Hayloft or Ants in Your Plants of 1939, right? There's room for the deer hunter and there's room for the Grapes of Wrath. I think the idea is that you should make the Grapes of Wrath and you should make the deer hunter because that's the story you want to tell. You should not make that movie because you think the public needs to be educated, right? And that's what Joel McRae thinks at the beginning is that I have to show people. That's why the title of his movie he wants to make, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That ti- that's a terrible title on purpose. It's pretentious, right? Oh, not even, not even, of course, there's no H. You just know that, right? It's just, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Is that is that the title is pretentious. Joel McRae's reason for wanting to make it is pretentious. Now, doesn't mean you can't make those kinds of movies, but you have to, it's, you know, does that make sense? Like Michael Cimino wanted to make the deer hunter because that's the story he wanted to tell. Not because he thought he wanted to make an argument to the quote unquote common man and wake them up about Vietnam. Yeah. Oh, oh brother, Art, that was outside the funnel of his artistic vision, but he's, he's going there on purpose because he's become fatigued of who he is yes. or or doesn't believe in the power of his of his own movies anymore he doesn't understand their place and i think to your point that that doesn't mean that they don't have a place that means it's not his place right so when we talk about the title what's interesting is the title obviously makes you think of gulliver's travels like it even kind of like sounds like an echo that gulliver's travels right so i started to think well how is it like gulliver's travels and and they're both about a guy that goes on a journey <laughs> learns a lot about the human human species is affirmed of something and it is set right. Now, what's interesting is that Gulliver, the way Gulliver is set right is to become misanthropic. At the end of Gulliver's travels, he hates humanity. Human beings are terrible creatures. We should be like the Winhams, the logical horses and things like that. Um, Sullivan learns kind of the opposite, that people can be good. He meets a lot of good people in the film, not just the guy at the church, but like the guy at the lunch counter who gives him a meal and things like that. Um, People are good, but sometimes they need a relief valve, and that's what the movies can give them, right? Sometimes, even when you think you're going to watch a serious film in a church, they watch Pluto and Mickey Mouse, and sometimes that's what people need. And I think what's great is that the movie begins with the end, right? The the movie ends with where Sullivan should have been in the beginning. Like, he, he, he figuratively dies, he gets reborn at the end, and in the beginning, he knows everybody else. But at the end of the film, he realizes, no, like what everybody else knows is also valuable. In the, in the beginning, the producers uh, say to him, um, well, the public know what they like. He says, if they knew what they like, they wouldn't live in Pittsburgh. So in the beginning of the film, I know what people should like. And he learns now what the people like is actually really valuable. And it, ha- it, and it has a lot to do, as you said, with honest impulses. You can't ignore the fact that when he wants to, uh, he wants to make love to Veronica Lake, he says, I can't because I'm married. And she says, well, why'd you get married? And he said, well, for tax purposes. And I think that 
kind of the the analogy of the film is to say that getting married for tax purposes is like making Oh Brother Where Art Thou because you think that that's the kind of movie that people should be watching, but you should get right. You should marry for love, and you should make movies for the same reason. Yeah, if you're going to write a novel or make a film because you think you want to educate the reader or educate the viewer or raise somebody's like consciousness about something, you're automatically doomed to fail. There's no way it can't be pretentious. That stuff should come out organically in the film. And I think that's what you meant about The Grapes of Wrath and what we've been saying off and on throughout the whole series. So thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about Sullivan's Travels. Follow us on Twitter at 15MINFilm. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Again, this is episode 200. We have at least another 200 in us. Please let us know what to watch and follow us where, Mike? Letterbox. Letterbox. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time.